Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell, part of headmirror.com. My name is Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are here with Dr. David Haynes to discuss networking, practice building, and referrals. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker. Dr. Haynes is a senior professor of otolaryngology at a busy tertiary medical center here in the United States. He is the director of skull-based surgery and cochlear implant programs at his institution, and he serves as the vice chair of academics and the director of relationship development for the Department of Otolaryngology. Dr. Haynes, thanks again for joining us. Let's jump right into our questions. So to start off, we hear the term networking all around us, but can you help us conceptualize what this term actually means to you and other practicing physicians? Well, actually, uh, networking is important to physicians and surgeons in, in particular in, in many ways, but it's quite variable. And you want to think about the arena that you're networking in. For example, you might have a physician who has a significant amount of leadership uh, within a specialty organization, but not necessarily is the go-to person even in their own city from uh, a surgical standpoint. Uh, you may have someone who's unknown nationally, uh, but has networked their way uh, locally into being the mayor of their city or, or show, show leadership in local nonprofits and uh, in their church. And then you, you may have uh, certain medical centers where there's an internationally known surgeon who gets referrals from all over the world, but spends his or her time in the operating room till midnight. And another surgeon in, in their group may have more of an institutional uh, network than this person. So, you know, it's it's really uh, interesting when you look at the uh, the arenas at which people will uh, have uh, their social networks. And many times, it's it's what arena that you choose to be in and what what interests you. I think when I look at our group, we try to strategize these uh, arenas and and kind of assign, if you will, our, our partners to be in. To, to gather uh, uh, and socially network in these areas so that we always have a, a voice or some seat at the table in all of these areas. So you started to talk about this a little bit, but um, for our listeners, can you go through why knowledge and practice in this topic is important for physicians in any setting? Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you for uh, considering me to have some knowledge in this area. You know, it's a, it's a, area that I think we can all do better. And I'll give you some history. You know, I, I was, uh, did my fellowship and, and at the otology group at that point, it was in private practice. And, and I was in awe of that practice because uh, Mike had started this practice on his own with resources that only he generated on his own uh, and yet developed this into an, an international uh, practice with international referrals and I was uh, in awe of that. And when I did my fellowship with him, you know, I paid careful attention to how that could be built. I was also able to watch another master uh, surgeon, Jim Netterville. I was able to watch him build an international uh, practice uh, that it is today from the beginning. And I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to build a top center. And of course, referrals are a key component. Of, of this uh, equation. You know, when I see people with a goal, uh, my goal was to build a top practice. I think people don't always uh, look at all the pieces of the puzzle that it will take to achieve that goal. 
you, you want to have a, a, a whiteboard, either an actual whiteboard or a, a notebook, uh, or maybe in your head if you're smarter than I am, uh, that has all the components it takes to build a destination center, research, patient care, patient satisfaction, surgical outcomes, academic productivity, all are needed. This, some are, are weighted, in my opinion, more, more than others. But I can tell you, as I study the great centers, uh, they all started and, and began with the same thing, which was high quality, high volume surgical practices that resulted in surgical outcomes and things tend to, to grow around there. And the only way to start that is with uh, a nice referral network. So you kind of outlined some of the important topics in building a destination center in an academic practice. How do you see networking playing out in a private practice? Well, I think it's uh, definitely uh, important in both areas. You know, I've watched a shift in time. Uh, when I first practiced, I'm very old school. If your waiting room was empty, it's your fault. And, you know, your leadership team would say, why are you not busy? Now it seems to be more of a team effort. And I'm called in as the division director and say, well, why is Dr. Jones not busy? And it seems that we've kind of given up some ownership in building our own practice, so to speak, especially with the team concept. But I think it's crucial. It's definitely one of the aspects, if not the most important aspect in building your practice is is a network of referrals. Yeah. I mean, from a financial standpoint, having revenue coming in is heavily dependent on your referral basis and being able to network with the physicians that send you patients, especially, you know, in a subspecialty such as otolaryngology. So if we wanted to give advice to our listeners, how do you even go about starting to build a network for your practice? Well, again, you have to consider that whiteboard and all of the components that it may take to build a practice and, and think of a balanced portfolio and, and what weight you're going to give to all of these many, many methods of uh, outreach and, and networking. Uh, one way is to attend conferences and conference uh, networking is important in building a, a reputation for your center to a point, you know, again, it's important, but you won't really succeed if, if you are always at conferences and always at international uh, destinations. Uh, I think we like putting conferences uh, together. Uh, we host conferences and, and these are sort of like retreats for us. You know, we're all off. We're all welcoming uh, uh, residents, fellows, practicing physicians into our uh, center uh, and we're doing what we like, which is teaching and teaching otology. And we find that that's an excellent method to, to build a, a relationships. Local meetings, um, even audiology conferences and state conferences. Uh, even early in my career, I went to pediatric uh, conferences and spoke and internal medicine conferences and spoke. And I think our tendency is to rush in. Uh, to these audiology conferences, if you will, give your talk and, and leave. Uh, but what I found is, is staying and listening and networking and, and pe meeting people is, is crucial in, in building a network and showing them you know, that you, uh, you, you have the time and, and the interest in, in this field. 
you know, we always talk about word of mouth and, and that that's crucial. We, we think referrals are going to come from our other surgeons in the doctor's lounge, <laughs> um, but, but you're not really going to get that many uh, uh, referrals from, say, my orthopedic buddies. I'm more likely to get them from the nurses. And you always want to act in the hospital as if that nurse you're interacting with will say, if my son or daughter or mother ever gets sick, that's the doctor that I want to see them. And we don't always do that. But let me tell you uh, that, that word of mouth uh, and referrals from other patients are, are really uh, important and valuable. And then, you know, visiting local practices, I'll do that if I'm on a trip. I don't like driving right by uh, my uh, referring doctor's office. Uh, I think you were with me once coming back from a meeting and we stopped to see one of my uh, referring doctors. And I, I enjoy that. I enjoy seeing the city they live in. I enjoy seeing their practice. I enjoy even seeing how, how their uh, operations are set up and, and visiting them. And when they uh, send patients, I can say, I've, I have been to that office and I've seen uh, that big river by there. What is that river named? And, you know, it gives some comfort, I think, to patients to know that uh, that, that there is an, an actual uh, a connection between uh, their, their home doctor and the doctor that, that is seeing them uh, now. So you mentioned having that personal connection can be important for your connection to the patients that are seeing you. Um, but how does that help with your relationship with your referring doctors? And what does that kind of communication look like? Well, as I mentioned, you, you have to provide a, an excellent uh, patient care. Uh, I, I can't emphasize this enough. As you know, I spend most of my life in the operating room and in the clinic. And, you know, networking won't work unless you can deliver the goods, right? Unless you, you if you hang your shingle at is the best, you, you have to provide, you have to perform, you know, you, so you, you have to spend a, a lot of time uh, getting the results that, that you, you want. You can't send unhappy patients back to your referring doctors. You can't send patients back to your referring doctors who need, uh, who have complications that they will manage. Um, and if they're comparing you to another center where those patients are not coming back unhappy uh, or they're not coming back with a, a list of complications that they are now involved in managing, I think you will end up uh, being deferred. You know, I, I dictate letters to every physician and, and audiologist or, 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 or uh, even PA, uh, if you will, who, who sends me a patient. I think it's an important part of the communication and the care of the patient. And I'm very specific, uh, I, I think, and what the components of that letter are, mostly what I think is going on, uh, what I think needs to be done, and a very specific plan of action. And then that letter is uploaded into the medical record. Our, our residents, our fellows have a clear uh, idea on the plan of action. I, you know, I, I dictate these letters uh, out of respect for them. They, they chose me. They chose our center. And I, res I want to show them I, I, I appreciate and respect that. And people ask me, you know, why do you dictate those letters every time I see you, you're dictating? And uh, I'm too busy for that. You, you may not be, but I, I am. You know, I don't think I'm ever too busy to uh, clearly communicate a plan of action uh, that's involving a patient. And, and what I, I say is this. If you think about a, quote, simple 
clinic day, end quote. You know, I'm down with Epic now, seeing fewer patients that see between 30 and 35 patients. But if you think about all the time that it went to set that clinic up, it takes me eight to 10 hours to see that that clinic, my resident or fellow, eight to 10 hours, my nurse, eight to 10 hours there with me, my MA, the same amount, the front desk is there putting in that amount of time, the check in, the check out, access, uh, getting medical records, not just our team, but the referring doctors, the patients driving, some of them come from eight to 10 hours away, some stay in a hotel. And at the end of that, hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of work, even the MRI, the MRI is done so that you can make an appropriate plan and decision. Uh, Hundreds of hours just going into that one uh, clinic. We think that's an eight-hour easy clinic, but it's far from a simple clinic. That It takes me about two hours to dictate uh, these letters and communication plan of action, but it's a a small part uh, of a very, very uh, complex process. I know you've done some previous research into better understanding how providers choose which other physicians to send their patients to. Can you share some of that data that you have uncovered through your work? Yeah, we sent out a survey and, um, you know, it, it, it's clear, and I've said this before, that you have to provide excellent care in an efficient way that provides uh, the top outcomes. And I'm always studying uh, what makes programs great, uh, what makes patients happy with their visit. Some, some of these are out of our control, the garage and the check-in and the check-out uh, issues that, that may, uh, but you can control what you can control. And I know, actually you have an interest in design. And if you think about uh, operational uh, improvement, it's, it's never done. You know, it's never uh, finished. Once you start improving a problem, there's another problem to improve upon. And and there's always a way to make your delivery better. I I try to remember how difficult it is for uh, a freestanding office to send a referral into a physician. And, you know, I think about how lucky I am to be able to walk three halls down, find an internationally... uh, uh, renowned head and neck surgeon and ask them to see a patient. And oddly, I think a few weeks ago, I'll go down there and, and they were in the room and they weren't there ready to talk to me yet. And I had to wait five minutes and I felt put out and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm so I've got to get back. I'm getting behind. And how ridiculous was that? Right. I, I have a world-class surgeon down the hall. I can just walk down here and say, hey, can you see uh, this, this person here? They, they need your, your expertise. Yet, if I was in a private office, how difficult is it to get someone in to see uh, me? And you have to think that way. And it, it is quite difficult. And and those relationships, though, that you develop, I think, makes that, that process easier. Having a personal relationship. And it, it goes a long way also to being forgiving for some of the issues that we all have in our offices that we'd like to make better. When referring providers are looking at a list of potential options to send their patient for a more complex disease or whatever reason, outside of that personal relationship, how much do you think uh, availability, um, ease of referral, and other factors like that play into the process? 
Well, I think it's important to have a great amount of respect for what our referring doctors and audiologists and uh, do. You know, uh, and that's why I communicate um, so extensively with them. I want them to know how much I appreciate uh, their trust in us and, and, and allowing us to care for their patients. I'd like to think I'm, I'm pr- pretty humble. You may disagree. <laughs> um, but uh, w- when you really think about it, you know, as a specialist, as an otologist, I've decided that I'm going to concentrate on one small part uh, of the uh, body, of the ear, of our specialty, and concentrate on just a handful of operations. And, you know, many of our referring doctors have a much broader depth of, of surgical knowledge in other areas. Uh, and can do more operations than, than I can do. And I have to keep up with my end of the bargain. That is, I have to be better at these few operations and these few disease processes that I've confined my practice to. And uh, I, I think that you have to be humble. It, it, it's just that you're not that much better or smarter than anyone. You, you've just refined your practices all. I appreciate uh, uh, them uh, my referring doctors think that I have an expertise in, in these areas. Uh, I can tell you s- some of them do excellent work and I compliment their work all the time. I, I, I'll have patients where the, uh, a tympanoplasty was done on the right and I, they're sent to me for the left side, for example, and the right looks beautiful. You know, it's an intact tympanic membrane and perfect hearing. And I'll say, wow, they did a fantastic job uh, here. I can't do a better job. I can only hope to do as good a job as they've done. They, they really did a, a nice work and complimenting uh, them when you can for a job well done, I think is important. What are some of the actions or uh, things that we may do that would put off referring doctors or things that we should generally avoid doing? It's a great question. And, and as you get into your practice, you'll realize uh, as you send referrals out to uh, others, what you like and what patients like from those referring doctors and and what they don't like and what you don't like. And that will shape kind of the way that you may uh, act, if you will. The speed at getting in is important. Patients happy with their care. The providers, you know, the referring physicians noting a personal relationship. Uh, You know, I have patients coming back saying, I got sent to you by Dr. So-and-so. She says she knows you. And, you know, you realize after 20 years, you've never met them, but yet you, you do know them. We t- we've been taking care of the same patients together for, for many, many years. So, yes, you know, I, I do know her or him. But most important is to take ownership. To refer someone means you're saying, I care about this person. I think this person needs someone uh, with no, more knowledge in this particular area than I do, because I want them to get better. Uh, and and the turnoffs and the things you don't want to do is to send a brief note. We've all had this saying, "Go back to see Dr. Haynes. And, uh, this is not my problem." Or I see no evidence of of anything here that that I can help with. We we know kind of those referrals, and, and I can tell you a, a particular story. As you know, I like to tell these parables and stories for teaching. I I remember a patient had a pituitary abnormality. Some MRI was looking for an acoustic and there was a a spot on the pituitary. I don't know anything about pituitaries. And again, I'm saying, I don't know enough about this to give this patient justice. I'm sending you to someone who who does. 
Yet the referring letter that I got back from this particular provider was, here is what you will do. You will order these three labs every six months. You will order an MRI every year. If this tumor enlarges, you will send the patient back to me uh, and then I will remove it. And, you know, that didn't sit well with me uh, that I that I was seeing 10 times the number of patients in a clinic than this particular person was. And I quickly just sent them to another uh, person who took ownership. Taking ownership is what most most people want, right? They, they want your expert. I was looking those labs up on Google just to figure out what they were. That's not that's not the right thing to do. And so, so taking ownership uh, is crucial. Other things that I think you can make a mistake on and, and as, as a consultant or a derogatory comments to the patient about their care or about their diagnosis or about their surgical outcomes, you wouldn't think that would need to be said, but I think we've all been in clinics with uh, physicians who tend to do this, and I'm not sure what their, their end goal is to look better to the patient, but I don't think that makes anyone look uh, good. And, and uh, for example, you know, if I see someone that I think has migraine and uh, they've been treated for Meniere's disease, I won't say I think they were, were treating you for the wrong diagnosis. I'll say, listen, you've been adequately treated for Meniere's disease and you don't seem to be improving. Let's go down another pathway here and let's see if we can't get you better by, by looking at and turning over a few more stones, but you've been very adequately treated for this process without improvement. And, and I, I can tell you another story, I, I, not to give too many stories, but I think that's where I like to treat, teach is a, uh, another pituitary patient that I sent out. And uh, you say, you've got this spot. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to send you to someone who does know. And this is another physician who saw this patient. And the patient, and I said, you'll see this doctor in the morning. You'll see me in the afternoon. We'll look at uh, the MRI uh, for your acoustic tumor. They had an acoustic tumor as well. They came back and they were upset and, and said, well, what's wrong? And they said, well, I went to see this doctor and they said that you didn't need to send me there, that you were wasting their time and you wasted uh, my time and that everyone knows all you have to do is get an MRI every year and order these labs and, and that that's all you had to do. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an important doctor and I don't need to be, be doing this. And I'm sorry that, 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 that you, you wasted your time and my time, everyone else's time in, in coming here today. And I can tell you that that physician never got another referral from me. Uh, and, you know, we don't always have to be seeing, you know, the five centimeter tumors with brainstem compressions. Patients are here. They were sent to you. They were sent to you out of respect for your knowledge. They were sent to you out of, uh, uh, because there was a question that needed to be answered. And, and sometimes I have some fairly simple things in my clinic, a, uh, like a, a mastoid with uh, two air cells opacified. And instead of taking that approach, like you're wasting our time and you wasted your time and I, I'm this big doctor that, that it can't be bothered with such trivialities, you know, I'll, I'll say, listen, your, your doctor did a great job. There is an abnormality here, but I've looked at it extensively. And I don't think this is anything that we need to worry about, but, um, but yeah, it is an abnormality. And I am, I have looked at that. I've seen this before, and I don't think we, we need to, to certainly do surgery. 
and likely not even repeat the study. And, and isn't that a better way to uh, make the patient, the referring doctor, and, and make myself even look better than the arrogance that you often see from uh, consultants? Yeah, I think the way that you handle the situations that can walk through your clinic is almost as important as how you physically resolve the disease process. And I think, you know, a lot of our job is reassurance for patients who who may not have a very serious disease process. And so I think making sure that that you handle that in a way with grace is is an important thing as you've mentioned. Let's say we've developed, you know, our our routine for good communication with our referring providers and maybe we're just recently starting in practice and we've kind of gained the trust of our more local referring docs, but what are some of the ways that you can potentially expand your referral basin to outside the area that you're familiar with? Well, now that, that takes everything that we've talked about here today um, to create a, a center with an impeccable reputation uh, where patients referring physicians all know that it can't be done anywhere else. That's the practice that, that I wish to have. And it takes everything we, we've talked about. Think of someone going to Mayo Clinic or MD Anderson and, and other like centers where you, patients say, I'm going to get an opinion uh, at this center. And then you may say, oh, which MD or which physician are you seeing? It doesn't matter. I'm going to the center. And they've created a situation where everyone who practices at that hospital, that institution, that department uh, will provide that level of care that it doesn't matter at that point. That's what we've tried to build here, a, a center of excellence. And I think that's what it takes. Everything that we've, we've talked about, uh, the building blocks on the whiteboard. And remember, if you, I think if you're a young person listening to this podcast, that, that every place started with uh, one or two people that were like-minded. Uh, the Mayo Clinic started with the two Mayo brothers. Uh, the MD Anderson, e- every place started with one person or two people and uh, built a-, a system. So if you find yourself in a similar position, uh, th- don't be discouraged. Uh, every center of excellence started uh, the same way. I know, and Ashley, we talked about your interest in design. Perhaps starting scratch is, is better than trying to tear down a system that's uh, uh, non-innovative and, and, and stale. Uh, and uh, so don't be discouraged if you find yourself as the only laryngologist uh, on board in a practice or in an academic center or only otologist. You can build your brand just like uh, every other center, center of excellence was built. In addition to that, for some physicians who are just starting out or moving into a new practice and just starting to build a referral network, do you have any specific advice for for folks in that situation? Well, I think the theme of the podcast is to begin with providing the top-notch care. I remember when I first started, I was in the uh, operating room all the time, in the clinic, all the time, late at night. I had two shifts of nurses. I had a morning shift for the clinic and the evening shift. Um, And you wondered, was anyone noticing? But people do notice. It it sort of uh, takes some some time uh, until you create a brand that deserves referrals and certainly deserves 
long-term referrals, uh, and you're creating that, that brand, you're learning how to practice and, and how to talk to patients and how to do surgery. And you should enjoy that phase of your uh, practice as you build your, your brand. You know, other ways at which that we haven't talked about thus far are social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And I think those are parts of the puzzle too. People ask me about those all the time. And, I, and my response is, it's just a piece of the puzzle. You know, we are building our brand and, and this is a vehicle and uh, can we do better? I think we can. You know, I think we can do better with anything, especially maybe a presence in some of the patient uh, uh, venues in, in Facebook, which seems to be an, an emerging uh, way at which information is gathered. Wonderful. Um, do you have any specific resources for our listeners to learn more about this topic or maybe even get some practice? I don't know of any how-to book, uh, but I'm sure sure there's some out there. You know, I have a lecture on building a, a practice. This, this podcast, uh, Ashley, that you're doing, again, Hats off to you and to um, Matt Carlson and your team at Head Mirror for even recognizing the importance of uh, off-topic things like this that that would really help people in their practice. You know, you know, we did this uh, podcast on leadership and mentorship, and then this one on uh, referrals. And if you think of the success of the person going into an academic or private practice, wouldn't kind of weigh on whether they can do a stapedectomy or not, but it would weigh heavily, you know, the, these things that aren't really taught. So you're teaching things that, that may or may not be, be taught uh, on a formal level. And, and hats off to you for trying to uh, get your uh, uh, arms around a topic like this. You know, you, you, we all have someone, and I was blessed. I had Jim Netterville there. I had Mike Glasscock, who had already done it, and I could watch and take notes. Uh, but each of us have someone that you can look at, uh, a younger or older physician who's really created a, a network and an excellent practice. And they would like nothing more than to sit down with you and tell you how they, they did it. They'd probably rather talk about that than, than how uh, their, their techniques on rhinoplasty have improved. Uh, if you sat down with someone you respected and said, how did you really build this and, and what would you recommend? What, what could you do better? What could you, what do you wish you'd done when you were early in your practice and, and take notes and get a head start? You know, I was blessed to, to work with Jim Netterville. I was blessed to work with Mike Glasscock. I feel like I saw excellence. I, I feel like I was on a John Wooden coached basketball team or a Pat Summit coached basketball team. And you look at those pedigrees and those people that played on championship teams go out and, and develop championship teams. And you could see how it was done. And that was luck. That was luck that I ended up at places like this. Well, it wasn't quite luck that I got into Mike's fellowship. I think I've told you that I, I went over there and did everything I could to get into that fellowship. I think I, I was the janitor over there for a while just to work my way into the uh, fellowship. But, you know, uh, I, I saw an opportunity to learn a lot of great things and how to build a destination center, but they're all around you if you just look. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point um, in emphasizing the value of even just observation alone. And I think one of the issues uh, as far as, you know, 
thinking about business and medicine and the various aspects related to that is that we just don't think about these topics early in our careers, probably because we're distracted by learning how to operate um, through residency and learning how to take care of patients through residency. But I think even just knowing that this is an important thing that we have to learn about kind of opens our minds and our perspectives as we go through training to hopefully gain some more information and knowledge about these topics just from the folks that we work with. And I agree that you don't necessarily have to be at the the quote unquote, you know, top program uh, in the country to be able to learn these because they're excellent um, examples in every institution across the country where you can learn how to take better care of patients and how to expand your reach and help more patients. And ultimately, I think that's the goal of this podcast series is that we want to raise awareness and hopefully bring some resources to folks a little bit earlier in their careers to help them get a jump start. I agree. And th- thanks to you and thanks to the Head Mirror team for giving me the opportunity and, and for thinking out of the box on these topics. Wonderful. Thanks again, Dr. Haynes, for joining us once again. Um, It's been wonderful chatting with you. And uh, this wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.